0: Greetings, future fossils. I'm going to keep this one short and sweet for episode 184, which is my birthday, January 1984, which is super appropriate for this bizarrely congruent confluence of minds that I get to share with you this time. This, I think, is the first episode I'm not going to bother to edit at all because it was just so delightful and Ripping the entire time that I just can't bring myself to do it. So, I don't know, guess let me know if you notice a difference, if you take issue. I think I'm probably a whole lot less articulate when I don't pull all the fillers, but at any rate, Henry G is amazing. Paleontologist, evolutionary biologist, senior editor of Nature, musician, Parent, humorous person, I deeply enjoyed talking with the author of several books, including the one that we discuss in this episode, A Very Brief History of Life on Earth, which in, as he puts it, 12 pithy chapters, takes us all the way from the formation of the cosmos to the end of life on Earth, actually, into the future, in what I think is a, a rather virtuosic demonstration of speculative evolutionary biology in the final chapter, but it's possibly one of the best short, like 200 pages, ways to acquaint yourself in detail with how life has evolved on this planet. I really was deeply impressed as a lifelong fan of this subject, and uh, you got to read it. That's all I gotta say. But because he's such an interesting, multi dimensional, well rounded person, we spend a good deal of this conversation talking about other things as well, including the fact that he was the founding editor for Nature's Futures series, which was a co- originally a commissioned science fiction series that basically hosted everyone of import alive as a science fiction writer uh, at the time of its inception. And since, I mean, that may be an exaggeration, but, you know, it's not that much of an exaggeration. And we talk about music, and we talk about family life, and we talk about a number of other things. I really feel like this is a quintessential Future Fossils episode. I'm delighted that I get to share it with you. And before we dive in, I just want to thank... Every single person supporting this show on Patreon because you guys, I'm up at 1am right now with my son in my lap because this little guy will not go to sleep and I had to extract him from the arms of his exhausted mother so that she could get some sleep and basically this is the time that I have to work on the show these days. It's nuts. And without your support, I wouldn't be doing this at all. It would be too insanely difficult. And yet, it is precisely because I have this family that I must continue doing Future Fossils. So thank you to everyone. We're only about a quarter of the way towards my goal of a thousand patrons. If you love this show, for the love of God, please put some money on it. Two, five, ten bucks a month. I don't care what it is. The goal is a thousand patrons. Special thanks to Jonathan Musser and Michelangelo for the latest signups. Michelangelo, as you probably know, was the guest on three excellent episodes of this podcast that I highly recommend you dig back into the archives and discover for yourself if you haven't already. Oh, also, Patreon supporters just got their hands on the lossless downloads of my latest live performance opening for Devotchka at Meow Wolf in Santa Fe which was easily one of the coolest gigs of my entire life that video is now up on YouTube and Bandcamp and Spotify and everywhere else but if you're the kind of person who appreciates 24-bit Dolby mastered audio rather than 320 kilobytes per second mp3 well, that's just one of the many, many things that I do to try and shower my love on every single person who helps me keep this show on the roll. All right. Thanks, everybody. I love you. Enjoy. Uh,
1: so, you know, my um computer is very wayward. I bought it secondhand off a friend and it's always been very slow. I have connected to Riverside before. I have no idea why I couldn't do it today.
0: Not a problem. The way I, you know, I, it, I, I kind of saw it as this, uh, you know, like tetrapods emerging onto land and then deciding, oh, no, 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 gosh. no, no, we're going back in the water. And then, uh-huh. you know, like someone, uh, I was, I follow this science fiction newsletter that said, that said uh, that Star Trek Enterprise is the only show that got it right that, because they're the ones that are showing. Sorry, I missed. You, you followed something oh, and then I had to. I said I, I said, I said, I, 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 subscribed to the science fiction newsletter that said Enterprise is the only Star Trek series that got it right because they're the only ones that show the technology not working perfectly. Yeah. You know, they're the ones that it's like, oh, I don't know if I want to go in the transporter. That's sketchy, yeah.
1: you know. <laughs> um so you know it's uh and after all the timing issues we've had and the reschedulings i mean you know it it, it has it has to come right eventually oh that's better i can can i hear you in both ears now Say probably
0: yeah yeah i, yeah, I so. can hear you better you in can one probably ear hear other. my daughter screaming in both of your ears yeah, too, you see
1: i heard i heard that before you see on my computer i could see and hear you and I just couldn't get my microphone to engage. It just refused to do it. Um, anyway, we're anyway, here now.
0: Wonderful. Well, I'm excited. Uh, I am I was actually up all night with your oh, book. Oh, no.
1: All night. Oh, Christ. <laughs> it's not that long.
0: It's been a long time since I pulled an all-nighter, but I really felt like I had, you know, I've, I've got a family and there's a lot going on. And I, I had... I don't know 20 pages left at by the time the kids were asleep and people kept yeah,
1: yeah anyway. it gets better it gets better man it gets better You know what I how old how old are yours Uh
0: she's turning 3 this week and he's oh. almost 8 months
1: Yeah it gets better after they hit 5 Um then it kind of calms down I remember when our first child was born, he's now 24, um, the first six months was hell. And then one day he, he slept through the night, he, he went to sleep, and I remember me and my wife sitting exhausted on the sofa, and we just looked at each other and said, what did we used to do before we were parents? <laughs> and, um, we used to jointly edit this newsletter for local parents, and we used to put in funnies that appeared on the internet, and one was so you want to be a p- parent try these try these simple tests to see if you're fit to be a parent one shopping go round the supermarket and, and do your usual shopping, but take with you a live goat um, <laughs> being prepared to pay for everything the goat eats or destroys um preparing your living room uh get an oh, a cooked fish finger put it, stuff it down the back of the sofa and leave it there for a year. Um, This was a bit old school. Prepare your video cassette recorder. Put a slice of toast into the slot. But my favorite one was how to dress a one-year-old. For this exercise, you will need an octopus and a string bag. Now put the octopus in the string bag without any of the tentacles coming through the holes. and uh, So you can relate to all these, no doubt.
0: Indeed, uh, yes, yes uh i mean I don't know i i i must be a glutton for punishment because i have uh a great sense of humor but it feels i don't know there was this thing um I don't know if I talked to you about this in the emails leading up to this of which there were many but yeah but i uh I kind of fell out of academia after uh. I read a couple of papers in the final semester of my, my uh, undergraduate degree that kind of knocked me off the rails uh, that I'd been on 21 years, consistent monomaniacal obsession with vertebrate paleontology.
1: Mm-hmm. And then
0: I read this, this paper uh, by Martin Nowak and Josh Plotkin on the evolution of syntactic communication. And oh, yeah uh I, I realized, oh my God, they're they're talking about more than just syntax of words. They're talking about multicellularity. They're talking about social organisms. Like mm. this is a math that the error catastrophe that they were describing here and the the recombinant adapt uh, adaptation to that that crisis explains a kind of a a, a teleology in evolution. And I got really excited. And I started pressuring, you know, I was at the University of Kansas and um, Ed Wiley was there. And of all people, mm-hmm. the co-author of evolution as entropy, you think this guy would have some sympathy for, for uh, a, someone with a, uh, a yen for general evolutionary dynamics, but he was sup- shockingly uh, dismissive of the idea of, Evolutionary phenomena before DNA. Mm-hmm. Um, my my uh, boss as a scientific illustrator at the museum, Linda Trube, she said, "Look, if you if you want to put an interdisciplinary fellowship together, you probably could." And you could probably get it funded, but you'd need six people advising you in six different departments, and they all hate each other, and they don't trust each other, and they don't speak each other's language. And I said, I'm the student. I'm not supposed to be teaching these people. And I bailed. Mm. And I spent 13 years in festivals. And the, the short of this story is that uh, I feel like the insanity of making art and music and giving talks at festivals for 13 years before I fell back into the orb uh, as a science communicator at the Santa Fe Institute mm-hmm. um, had prepared me for children in a way, because it's like, you, you're never getting enough sleep. There's no. always too much noise. Uh yeah. You know, you're just, so I'm, I'm, I'm permanently in, in a way kind of like peripheral. Um f-
1: Well, yeah. I'm, I've got it during lockdown. I've got a new passion. Oh, Uh, So I bought a cheap guitar um, And As soon as I I'm a keyboard player So I bought a cheap guitar You know I've been doing some music With a guitarist friend of mine But I need to play some guitar To show him what I mean You know I play some not very good guitar So he can replace it with proper guitar Um, But lockdown does these things to you I mean I used to be a live player And then lockdown You know The pandemic And I discovered I much preferred recording at home um and i'm afraid i bought this first guitar it's a very cheap epiphone ip90 um uh and uh, you know it's a slab um uh, but a friend of mine said come on you're soon going to get a whole collection of guitars you won't be able to resist it and uh um i'm trying to charge this thing and uh i said no nah, no i won't do that but i do have my eyes on an epiphone Les Paul with humbuckers cause, uh, in it. And I've just commissioned a woodwork friend of mine to make me a mandolin. Nice. So, um, so, so uh, I'm, you know, i got the bug.
0: Do you like, have recordings online that I, I do. can find? I
1: do. I do. Oh, good. Um, the, the thing you should look for is an album by the, – the, the recording name is g and G&Thomas. GM known as G&T and the album's called Ice and a Slice and it's on Apple Music. Uh, um, my friend Adrian Thomas, who's an old friend of mine, I was in a band with him like 20 25 years ago and he turned professional. He's a professional guitarist and he teaches and plays but then he had um, he had an unfortunate happening he got psoriasis in his finger ends. Um, so he, he can play guitar to teach and um record a bit but he's also a drummer so he's back you know behind the drum stool in about four or five different bands and he makes a living so during lockdown he had plenty of time but now he's always out gigging so i don't know uh uh, if uh, i've got so much material i've just sent him a disc to do another whole album and uh maybe we will but um i for this album i used a yamaha clavinova piano which I've since sold, and I've got my Crumar Mojo 61 organ, which does beautiful roads and clavinet. But for, I had banks of synthesizers. I had an Oberheim OBX, uh, and I had a Moog Model D, and I had, oh god, Korg MS-20 and a, a Profit 5, but all on, all on iPad. Beautiful. And I had an Arp string synth, and I had a Mellotron, all on iPad, all on iPad. So it sounds like Rick Wakeman and his knights of, and his six wives of the Knights of the Round Table going to the centre of the earth on ice. But it's just me and an iPad. Um, but now I've got a cork nautilus, which is just fantastic. I mean, it's got so many sounds. That's the one I did for the audio book um, uh, for the uh, History of Life on Earth. Because um, it's got the most amazing sounds. It's got the sounds of flies solving quadratic equations and... Uh, aardvarks, um chatting to each other in Chinese. It's just the best. It's got super foley and you know ac- incredible sounds, and it's got lovely world music. I didn't know what a duduk was. Do you know what a duduk is?
0: Yeah, it's the Middle Eastern string instrument
1: with the little. No, no, no. no that's something else. A duduk is a, is a wind instrument. It's a, oh, like an oboe. Oh yeah, little... yeah, and yeah. it's so, such a haunting sound, and they've they've got you want to deduct they have at least three in the nautilus and all sorts of other God. bulgarian nose flutes and yeah, i mean it's just astonishing um so i did the um i did the audio book for the history of life on earth on on the nautilus i mean it cost me you know two thousand pounds <laughs> but then it's it's but as i did the audio book it's tax deductible right so so you know that's good, and most people really hate it. Um, <laughs> I did all these fantastic sounds, and you read the reviews on Amazon, and people say it's a fantastic book, but I really hate these sound effects. I mean, <laughs> well, so, you won people, my
0: heart by doing some the music people, beds for your own audio book. I
1: did, I did, I did the whole thing. I mean, what what happened was, sorry, I'm blithering along. Um, Not what a problem. happened? What, what happened was, um, uh, I didn't expect them to ask me to do the audiobook so I was very surprised when the publisher asked me and I thought hmm, basically they're doing it so they don't have to pay an actor union rates I thought that's why they're doing it but no they did pay me so then they said hey Henry come down to London for three days and record it I said no there's a pandemic I'm not going anywhere uh, I'm going to do it at my home studio Flabby Road and they said uh, yeah I said look I've been recording albums you know, the the one I did, G&T, was the third one I did in lockdown. I, I said, I've been recording stuff at home, let me send you a demo. So I sent them a demo and with some effects, and they liked it. So I did the whole thing. And they didn't require me to do much in post-production except take some of the dinosaur-heavy breathing away. Too much dinosaur-heavy breathing. So apart from <laughs> that, and, you know, some of the vocals, some some of the narration was a bit hot So on the levels, so I had to redo a few bits. Um, but that's pretty much as I recorded at home, and, and a few people thought it was lovely, but most people hated it.
0: Oh my god, I, you know, now. So, so, what, what,
1: what have you been doing at festivals for all this time? What do you do?
0: Well, I mean, I was, uh, a painter. I mean, I, I, I mm. parlayed my scientific illustration training because what happened was the University of Kansas Natural History Museum said, We really hate to tell you this, but we, can't actually pay you what you're worth. We're paying you like mm-hmm. a third of what you're worth because of Bush era budget cuts. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean that I, I kind of lingered, um, while I was trying to find an appropriate institution. Um, I, I never actually ended up sending my, my vertebrate paleo recommendation letters out to the, the schools that I was trying to apply for. Uh, because I had met a girl who is, this, these kids mother now um, mm. we were f- together for 14 years before we actually had kids um, mm. but those 14 years were insane um, mm. and so yeah there were a couple years there after my undergrad that I just lingered around at the museum and did uh, illustration for the, the curator of herpetology and mm. they said to me after a while they're like you know I'm sorry but We wish we could pay you what you're worth and we can't. And so I said, well, I'm not finding a grad school and I'm not finding a a scientific illustration career. So I'm just going to bail. I'm going to go live in the one place that I know I love, which was Boulder, Colorado. So I moved Mm -hmm. from Lawrence to Boulder because I had fallen in love with Boulder at the
1: age of six. Well, it's easy to fall in love with Boulder. I've been there once.
0: Yeah, I I fell in love with Boulder at the age of seven because that's where I met. uh Well, that's the that's the where the second place I met Robert Bacher. and R.T. Right, uh, right. Bakker I met at the age of three in Palm Springs at the Museum of the Desert. Um My dad was yeah, in well, town that, on that a that business was trip, to
1: you. You and he took was an impressionable age.
0: Yeah, I mean he he loves kids, right? And he took me under his wing, and at the age of seven, we were we were going through Boulder and. To, to visit uh, a childhood friend of my mother's and my mom decided to just look him up in the phone book and give him a call. And he picked up the phone and said, uh, why don't you come out to get tacos with me? I'm, mm-hmm. I'm going to the field tomorrow. Uh, I just got over the flu, um, but let's do this. And he spent two hours with me at uh, the, the, uh, the Maya and Boulder, uh, I don't think it exists anymore. Um, the Terrace Maya, but he he spent two hours with me, just you know, doing this thing, drawn drawn on little notebook papers, a- a- answering ah. every question I had. Oh, it's great. Convincing my mother that she should let me have a pet snapping turtle, and. Uh, then taking me out to his Datsun to show me the, the, uh, oldest brontosaurus bones then known to science in the bed of his truck. And, you know, and, and, uh, so that sealed the deal for me. And I, I fell in love with, uh, Boulder then for sure. And then I, I went and I did, uh, field work with him starting at age 12 every summer. Wow. Uh, until I guess 19. I was there every summer in Wyoming and Como Bluff, working on Wow on nail quarry and and you know just driving amazing. past the original the original Stegosaurus quarry on our way out to That's the sites.
1: Now, Michael, are we doing this thing now? Or are we going to start doing this thing? I mean, we're
0: just... we're in it.
1: I'm you know oh, we're in it. Okay, I, just I, I don't. Um, I
0: mean, at some point we are going to talk about your book,
1: but I'm I mean, glad I'm to get to know to you. you a, I'm going a bit a bit of an exclusive uh, to you. Um, this no, I haven't told anybody this. So it's just our little secret, okay? <laughs> um, uh, one of the problems that people have had with my book is there are no pictures, and um, so that's fine with me. I mean, I wrote it as a novel, kind of. I wrote it as a story; didn't have to have pictures. You can imagine the things. I mean, but you're an illustrator, so I'm talking to you about this. And I'd be, appreciate your views. So I said to the publisher, I have two publishers, one in England and one in the States, and I said to both of them, "Hey, uh, why don't we do a slightly longer history of life on Earth with pictures?" And they said, um, "Well, let's see how this one sells first. So, if you want to see one with pictures, get everyone to buy lots of copies." Um, but I am doing a kind of children's version. This is the exclusive, which will be illustrated um and they already have an illustrator but I've put your name forward and other Ugh. people I know uh, just to see what they think but um it's going to be a children's version but as it'll be fairly high level because most children know more about dinosaurs than their parents so um I probably shouldn't tell you because there's nothing been sealed there's nothing been inked there's no agreement no contract yet been made but um I've been talking to the editor and we've been talking about what formats we'll do and so on. Um So there will be a, a version of my book with pictures aimed at, you know, preteens, I suppose. Well, I'll buy um, it for my
0: kids without question. Yeah, and I'm honored well, that you put my name in the hat. In spite of the fact that I'm rusty as hell, I recently, well,
1: I, I like your pictures. You sent me an email, you know, yeah. and our many problems of trying to get in touch. You said, you know, by the way here's some pictures and i thought they were great and i put you put you forward with some other people and i have to say including both my kids who are terrific illustrators you know purely nepotistic and i said to my younger daughter said hey you can't do that and she my younger daughter is my young daughter is very shy she's 21 and, and automatically said suggest, she suggested a college friend of hers who is now a professional illustrator and I, she said you can't, you can't suggest me, you're my dad. I said, look, you've got to, you know, use the old boy network. That's the only way to get on. And my, 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 although well, my daughter will go out of her way to go out of her way, my son is outrageously out there and he also does amazing pictures as well. Um, he is, uh, he used to be a girl. He used to be a very strange girl and then mm. he transitioned to be a boy in about 18 and he's now much happier. Um, but all the time, he did the most of <laughs> He does the most R-rated cabaret at the LGBT club. <laughs> you know, one one of the best parties I went to was when he was in the cabaret of a of, of a gay club, and uh, um, uh, it was. I, I'm not a party person. I, I don't like parties, but I like this party, and I realised I liked it because everyone was going as themselves, whether they were in street clothes or get, got up in the most amazing costumes. They were going as themselves and not as their daytime persona. So no one felt threatened, you know, and um, and some chap pinched me on me bum. The only, <laughs> time I've ever, only time I've ever pulled at a disco. I thought, no, he's not my type. Nice chap, not my type. Um, but um, I thought I wouldn't be there. So, you know, one o'clock in the morning... Uh, much to my surprise, I'm still boogieing away on the dance floor because they had pretty old school disco, you know, from my childhood, you know, Donna Summer and uh, all the all that stuff. And it wasn't, you know, club beats, which is way beyond me. So, um, my 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 uh, son, he was trans, he was a, then just non-binary. He said, uh, "Has anybody seen my dad?" He was in the green room with all the other performers. Has anybody seen my dad? And uh, and they uh, and they said, "Well, what's he look like?" He says, well, "You know, a bit fifties, fat, bearded." Oh, he's still on the dance floor. So I was on the dance floor. It was I was going quite slowly because it was one in the morning, and by that time the floor had got rather sticky. Uh, so um, <laughs> uh, you know, I then this enormously tall drag queen who must have been six foot tall without the heels sort of floated towards me and said oh am i henry g and i said yes and um i said i don't really do all this you know I'm, I'm not as young as i look and he and, and he said or she said no we all have that problem darling and uh now this person called Glitterhawk is a great pal you know with, uh, i mean i don't know what he's probably called kevin and he works in marketing i've no idea but you know Anyway, sorry, I'm digressing into the strange world inhabited by. You've got all this to look forward to, mate. You know. Well, you know, um, to,
0: to to tie this into the paleontology, then, um, you know, uh, Pierre Terre de Chardin was always talking about the how hyper collectivization leads to hyper individualization or, or hyper personalization. It's like you know the 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 niche construction you know that yeah. happens. At, you know, when you th- people like Jeffrey West talk about. Cities as you know three dimensional uh, complex overlapping transport networks, and so mm-hmm. you've got you know this this super exponential uh, bonus to the number of interactions that 's happening, and that means to the number of niches that are propagating in that space and so you know a global uh, you know connected highly heterogeneous society. And this is exactly what you would expect. And it's why mm-hmm. I think, you know, William Irwin Thompson, you know, used to talk about how so called evil is the enunciation of the next level of order. And he would talk about how, how people were freaking out about rock, their kids listening to rock and roll or mm-hmm. jazz and how that, you know, it's every, every generation um, has basically trained on data that no longer uh, encompasses the world in which they live. And 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 so it, this stuff comes up as noise.
1: No, well, you know, it's just like generals are always the generals are always fighting the war that was fought one before last, aren't they? I mean, it, <laughs> yes. it, it, it's. Um, but I have to say, I'm still lucky. My kids still love me, and this is because I've given them nothing to react against. I'm just even more outrageous than they are. It's the uh, it's the the only way way to do it. Um, but this is something that you will find quite soon—is the love of dinosaurs that they will never grow out of. Um, but I remember when Nature published the first feathered dinosaurs. Um, the, here's the—I'm uh, going to tell you the story, and then I'm going to tell you where the kids come in. Um, I was at the meeting of the society of vertebrate paleontology in new york in 95 or 96 i can never remember which it was anyway one of the mixers was in the hall of the northwest pacific you know one, the one with the totem poles and the potlatches and and the tlingit artifacts and anyway there we were surrounded by totem poles drinking beer and uh, and this chinese fellow called chen Pei Ji turns up with this very greasy much handled photographic print of what became Sinosauropteraics, and you know he works in the Yixian Formation, but he's a um, he's a crustacean specialist. Uh, so you know there are crustacean little pods and things in there, like teenagers have spots. I mean, it really is. It, there's loads of them, and he was using them to be to, to do the stratigraphy, but he kept coming across the feathered dinosaurs. Uh, and uh and of course um the place is full of them so he brought this photograph along and everyone was wowed uh Mark Norell said I'm on the next flight to Beijing and I was standing next to John H Ostrom who was very old and he just was completely lost for words and he just sat down on a bench with his stick and he was just amazed because all his dreams had come true um but uh, well, we had, we, we need my, to give
0: people some context there because yeah, yeah. Ostrom found Deinonychus, and so that was yeah. While while and also, Bakker was you know, a student was the, of his,
1: and, exactly, and, he was yeah. the pro, he was the mentor of Bakker, and they the two of them they revived dinosaurs into these. um into active, fast metabolizing, intelligent creatures. They whereas, gave them
0: feathers before they had any evidence yeah, of feathers, and so that's the that's vindication. Right. But, yeah. but
1: they made them hot-blooded. They made because when I was in my when I was a little kid, dinosaurs were seen as lumbering, stupid things that just died out because they were stupid. That that's how it was seen. Um,
0: oh, I lost you. There we go. You're. I hear you now.
1: No, no. Somebody phoned me up. I cut them off. Uh, Chen Pei Ji. Uh, was at this meeting and it's at times like this as a journalist when you realize you've run out of business cards it's terrible <laughs> so i found a bit of cardboard you know being very full of initiative i found a bit of cardboard just the edge of a beer mat and um uh and wrote my name and, and contact details and through the crush of people i gave it to chen pei and the rest is history. He sent Nate to the paper. We published the paper, and many years later, I happened to be in China, and I was at the institute in Nanjing, and uh, I—that was when I actually saw cynocephalopteryx for the first time. The the director took me up to their strong room to see their treasures, and there was cynocephalopteryx and some other uh, mammals and things. And then we came down and were standing outside this. Um, uh uh, outside the uh the the building and i don't know if you've ever been there but it's very hilly nanjing and we looked down at the bottom of the hill and we could just see this old man toiling up this hill uh and he got to the top and it was chen peiji he'd aged a lot um in the previous year i didn't recognize him um but we you know the introductions were said and then he got out his pocketbook And in his pocketbook was this piece of cardboard with my name and numbers on it that I'd given him. He'd had it in his pocketbook ever since as a kind of totem. That really got to me. Anyway, um, to cut back a bit further, because, you know, I'm being an editor at Nature. I get all the papers, but I don't see the fossils. And I always love to go and see the fossils if I possibly can. Um, So when the kids were four and two and a half the Natural History Museum in London, and I was living in London at the time, uh, had an exhibition called Feathered Dinosaurs from China. So I dropped the young one at the childminder, and me and the four-year-old uh, got on the tube to the Natural History Museum. And My wife was a journalist. She was at the BBC at the time, So, and it was half-term holiday, so off we went. And because it was the half-term holiday, the main dinosaur exhibition, which is free, which is absolutely rammed, but the the... Feathered Dinosaurs from China exhibition was in a side room and you had to pay extra to get in, so there weren't many people in there. And it was, just, there were just nine fossils in there, all lit mu- moodily, uh, in this uh, exhibition hall. Um, and I think I had published eight of them by that time. Uh, one of them was, um uh, Cordipteryx, and that wasn't on the wall that was on a tabletop slab i hadn't realized quite how it's quite a big it's like a turkey it's great, great kind of gangly thing and um i'd completely forgotten about the kid who was whizzing around this ex- exhibition like a stray asteroid um and so i was deep in thought looking at cordypteryx looking at the jaws and the feathers and wondering what this was and this little face appeared on the opposite side of the tabletop and said Dad, did you punish this in nature? And I thought, yeah, well, out of the mouths of babes, you know, I remember the paper. Yeah, they sent it in and we punished it. That's what we did. So, you know, you have this to look forward to. It's going to be fun, especially in Colorado.
0: I saw the Archaeopteryx once, uh, one of the specimens. I'm trying to, I, I'm trying to f- look it up and... Uh, photos. It must have been 2015 in Tucson at the Gem Show. Mm. They had it touring, and I had a religious experience with it because mm. this mm. is I mean, this is strange. I mean, I'm, I'm gonna I don't know out myself as a weirdo. I guess with you, but I
1: uh, yeah, we're all weirdos. I together. I had oh, a... Uh,
0: I, I met. The, I was painting in 2010. I was painting at, at NASA Ames. I was the only person mm. that was ever allowed to. To, to live paint at an event that they were hosting. That's an amazing place. Oh, the, building yeah, the, one. the
1: hangar it has its own, has its own clouds. Building it's <laughs> so so
0: they, um, so I was painting at this place and, and this, this woman comes comes up to me and she says she'd like to commission me to do a painting in exchange for psychedelic bodywork. And I said, okay. So I met her at her house in the mission a couple of weeks later and she gave me 2CB and lay me down on a, a table and, and worked my back for a few hours. And at some point in that experience, uh, I had been thinking about this is, and it's politically, it's, it's impolitic to call it this now. I don't know what to call it. Um, but at the time I was trying to like come up, I was like, do I have a spirit animal? And I, I couldn't come up with you know, an animal with which I identified myself and, you know, the, a, an animal that felt like my familiar. Um, mm. and, and in, somehow in that body work, she must've been wor- working some deep tissue or something. And I felt this extraordinary grief. And then I realized that the reason that I had never been able to find my familiar is because it was extinct and it was the Archaeopteryx and, oh. and the Archaeopteryx. I saw, in that moment that I saw it, I saw it with these gorgeous iridescent feathers, like, like a crackle, well, like black feathers with like yeah, the blue yeah, and green yeah. and like white we and agree. white flare. Yeah. And then, yeah. so, okay, so that was 2010. And then it was, I, I think, was it t- 2012 or 13 that they actually did the melanopore research on mm. Archaeopteryx and fa- and confirmed. That, that that they were they actually proposed that that was the precise
1: feather coloration of that animal. I'm I'm just still thinking. Can you have a spirit animal that's extinct? Uh, <laughs> that's interesting. But I mean, it, I, I think my I don't I think my spirit animal is a slug. It moves very slowly and eats a lot, <laughs> uh, like salad. Yeah.
0: Well, there's a tie-in there, I guess, because um, my my friend Bruce Damer, who works on origins of life. Research. Yeah,
1: that's right. You, you 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 um told me about him and I've um his work and so I've been reading up a little Yeah, bit.
0: yeah. He he works with Dave Diemer at, at UCSC hmm. but uh, Bruce was working with NASA Ames on some of the, the early A Life and, and origins of life stuff. Um was he
1: working with um with oh Lynn um Lynn Rothschild. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Because she's at NASA Ames and goes out to Yellowstone and looks at all these extremophiles. It would
0: not the, surprise me Toms. if they know each other.
1: But, I mean, the, the, yes. the slug... Her husband is called Rocco Mancinelli, and he works on extraterrestrial life. He he actually put bacterial samples on the long-duration exposure facility and had them exposed to space for ages and brought them down, and most of them had died. and some, But some were alive, although very sick. Huh. so so but they could ch- with a bit of love and care they could just about be revived so he was trying he was trying to 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 wonder if panspermia could could work unlike the tardigrades
0: um, the Chinese accidentally crashed on was it the chinese Israelis. yeah i've
1: got a, i've got i think that uh, the NASA, not, uh, the marvel and d c comics of mist trick uh they should be tardigrade man somebody who was Accidentally swallowed tardigrades in a pipette. and then, and then, then, then I was trying to imagine, make a little story about this. I tried to do this as a way of going to sleep, and uh, I was having a nap. So I imagine this this girl who's a you know mild, uh, spectacled Belinda Barker is a nuclear. Um, uh, power station technician, and the cadmium rods are not going into the pile, and so the thing <laughs> is going to blow up. So she actually goes into the live radioactive core and fixes it, and comes out, and you know, underneath the radioactive suit, she doesn't realise she's suddenly grown this kind of keratinous shell that that has that has you know, it fades away when she's out of the radioactive core. So then she becomes a kind of daredevil who goes into space and you know, uh, into, into radioactive waste and molten lead and everything. So tardigrade man is the next superhero. You know, they, they, they should, they should do that. I mean, there's so many, there's so many animals that could be superheroes. I mean about sea cucumber man who, um, who assails villains by squirting its guts out from its anus. No, that wouldn't work. <laughs>
0: yeah. NSFW is what they call that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, 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 well. yeah well, you should know that there's a, a brilliant animated series for, I guess, children and adults on Netflix called Kipo and the Age of the Wonder Beasts that features, Ooh, I should tell my kids a, about It's a this. post-apocalyptic uh, show in which humans have retreated underground. And when, they, uh, Kipo, the, the protagonist comes back above ground. She, she finds that the surface has been claimed by all of these mutated sentient descendants of the animals that we are are familiar to us. Uh, the wolves are especially hilarious because they're all like, it's, it's, they're all like, uh, obsessed with science. They're all Carl Sagan spoof, uh, the wolves, but the, the, uh, yeah, each each group has its own sort of clan, and then there's this uh, one entity in there that is uh, a a hive mind of tardigrades that manifests in these like plumes of water and is able to shape shift and take form and and like mind meld with people and so on. Oh, it's- a
1: bit like the bit like the thing in the abyss.
0: Yeah, it is, but it's made of yeah. tardigrades. It's like a it's just a t- oh, tardigrade
1: just- hive. Our uh, tar grades are just the best. Yeah, they're, they're so underappreciated, um, and they're just so cute. So really this is brilliant. actually
0: this is actually a, a point of entry into your book, <laughs> if we can, if you can imagine <laughs> us finally getting to it. Because um, one of the things I wanted to talk with you about is is how you know I I, I found threads through the book, you know, mm-hmm. and and one of those threads is dimensional, uh, for lack of a better term, conquest or uh you know niche construction um or you know ad- the the ad- the adaptation niche construction thing um and, yeah. and this this you know you, you, the way that you tell the story about how you know in the water and then just the extraordinary hardship i mean everybody thinks about like you know this like flappy lungfish or whatever coming out but like that, that was actually very late in the game compared to mm-hmm. all of the other prep work that had to be done before that, you know, the mycelia were were there already and, 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 and the insects and everything else that, you know, vertebrates were late to the party. And, mm-hmm. and then, you know, and you end the book. Um, well, I guess then you've got the air, you know and you talk mm. about the, the birds and we've we've touched on that mm. but i think it would be lovely to to hear you riff a little bit on the evolution of flight um mm. and then and then you know you towards the end of the book you talk about about well you know let's not discount space right mm. like you know we're we're very close it seems almost like if we can not destroy ourselves first to learning to adapt in a, I, you know, I love that you referenced Dougal Dixon's uh, after man. And then he's got, yeah, yeah. he's got the uh, uh, man after man, which apparently I guess was largely man. plagiarized from Wayne Barlow, but uh, well, I
1: don't know. It's a bit strange, man. After yeah, Man. Yeah. But man uh, after man it's, has it's those
0: space adapted but... humans that are like yeah, radiation yeah, yeah, shielded right. and everything. And so yeah, I would yeah. just love
1: to hear you, you
0: know, to, to, uh, settle into your your saddle here as a, as a an evolutionary storyteller, and uh, and and riff on this. Okay, oh, which about, one do you
1: which do you want? Well, just what do you want first? Yeah, just
0: I don't know. Just just talk about life as a as a process of continuing oh, to okay. achieve yes, well, success to in new no, hardships.
1: I, um, somebody who you will know from Santa Fe is Stu Kaufman, and um, yep. he has this idea that. Life is this, uh, he, he, defines life in a kind of thermodynamic way, but life is that system that is constantly expanding its own phase space. It's constantly making new niches to itself, which is not the case for physico-chemical systems. And this is why he thinks that having a definition of life is kind of impossible, um, because it's always changing the game. Uh, and, uh, th- this is, this is what I, found in in when I was writing the book, that if life has a motto, it's whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. So that um, life originated uh, very, very early. I mean, almost as soon as the earth formed, as soon as the earth was remotely habitable, there was life. It was just, it started very, very quickly. Uh, And this suggests to me that very simple life must be ubiquitous in the universe i mean i think it's one of the things that planets just get infested with like you know small children get colds and it's just it's (laughs) just that something complex life is, is another matter um but once life gets going it starts responding to environmental challenge by increasing in complexity so that it can um, basically run more economically and the first thing the first threat was the great oxidation event uh, two and a half cast your mind back two and a half billion years ago when all these little organisms which had adapted for life without oxygen were suddenly confronted with oxygen and if that weren't enough uh, an ice age that covered the planet in ice for 300 million years Um, so what they did what life did then was perfect something they 'd been playing with, which was the kind of bacterial community. Um, bacteria are very gregarious, lots of different species tend to live in in the same places in biofilms and stromatolites and um, because one bacteria 's waste is another bacteria 's food, and uh, they 're always swapping genes, swapping chemicals, and they live in this uh, kind of free uh, freewheeling goblin market of exchanging stuff. Um, and, uh, the, what, um, what they started to do was take this to the next level. So various different bacteria, each of which was specialized in its own thing, would live inside a common membrane. And, uh, the bacteria that did their own thing just became good at doing their own thing and leaving all the other, uh, tasks to their fellows so the little cyanobacteria which were good at photosynthesis just did photosynthesis and they contracted out all their other functions to mitochondria which used to be regular proteobacteria but they were very good at metabolism and oxidative phosphorylation and um uh, releasing energy from food basically and then the original uh, protagonist of all this was the archaeon, the tiny little archaeon that had started out by sending little tendrils out to other bacteria um, that surrounded it. These little tendrils eventually became the endoplasmic reticulum of the eukaryotic cell. But the archaeon was the place where the chloroplast and the mitochondria parked their DNA. And so the archaeon became the nucleus of, of the cell, and then you have this cell, and the thing about eukaryote is uh, eukaryotic cell. It's just like Adam Smith and the Wealth of Nations. <laughs> you can have you can have little cottagers all doing their weaving and marketing and selling from their little cottages, but they can only do so much as one family operations. But if you want to do it more, you get all of them working together in a factory, and each one works on the one stage of the process that it does best. And this means you can produce far more widgets or cloth works or whatever than, than, than you could just by the sum of the cottages. So eukaryotes could do more with less and go further. Um, and that was the response to the great oxidation event. And then roll a few million years, billion years further, more tectonic brouhaha and fuss and bother and more um, ice ages. Some of the eukaryotes start getting together quite aggressively to produce multicellular organisms. Um they started doing this um, uh, you know, fairly early on with very simple fungi and uh, algae uh, multicellularity has evolved at least twenty times independently um, uh, but um the uh it was when the animals came along where multicellularity really became complex about six hundred and seven hundred million years ago um, so that was another response to uh, global threat um, and so w- what happens is life tends to respond um, by increasing in complexity when uh, when disaster looms and of course you know you talked about the tetrapods coming onto land well whenever there is a vacant niche life will invade it no matter how hard it is I mean, the, the, back in the in in the cambrian the precambrian the the, the the land surface of the earth was volcanic rock, there was no soil, there was a lot of wind and water and weathering, but not. it was a pretty rough place to live. So it took millions of years of lichens and small plants and breaking down the rock and adding their own organic matter to make the first soils. And it was only then that the little bugs came in and lived underneath the leaf litter. Um, And the tetrapods were and still are a strange group of fish adapted for water of negative depth. I mean, fish live in all sorts of depths. You have fish that live in the deep sea and you have fish that live in the open water and fish that live in the shallow water and fish that live in water of negative depth. So which is the fresh air. So um, when they were uh, the, the earliest tetrapods came from river predators that lived in shallow water. Um, and quite often were above the water. If they were above the water, their first task was to get back under the water as quickly as possible. Um, But that's how tetrapods came about, Um, and eventually by invading a niche that other fish hadn't invaded. Um, And then you get into the air. Insects began to fly, and so if insects began to fly, there are going to be other creatures that are going to fly to chase the insects. And so, uh, um, and the most successful were the dinosaurs, who became the first flying vertebrates. I mean, properly flying vertebrates, as opposed to, you know, things that just fell out and um, parachuted.
0: So, you know, in 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 all of that, there's a thing that you talk about here, uh, where you it you strike it as a kind of like a folding, like I don't know, like the way that the way that I think of like the Baker transformation, you know, where you, you, you take the, it's a, a chaos theory thing where you, you take uh, two points on a plane, you fold mm-hmm. it over and then you stretch it to the original distance and you fold it over again. Yeah. And, and every time you do that, your original error, uh, error measurement is yeah. doubled. And so you, you, yeah. you get these, you know, you get these bizarre nonlinear things coming out of that. And, that is...
1: I'm losing you, Michael. Oh, oh, there you are. Yes.
0: So so there's something in that that kind of reminds me of... Uh, I don't know if you ever read uh, Annie Dillard's Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, which is... A long
1: time oh, ago. Oh, God. A long, long yeah, time Yeah,
0: such ago. a masterful work of natural history as mysticism, right? And it's why it won the Nobel yeah. Prize. And there's mm. this scene in that where she's talking about imagining the glaciers rolling back and forth like shutters you know just like up yeah. and down and up and down taking a step back you know zooming out into the deep time you know and just seeing these successions that you're talking about flickering and as there as as these these glacia, glaciation and volcanic periods are flickering across the surface of the earth then we are being sort of like alchemically processed into ever more yeah. refined forms, and I really, mm-hmm. I really felt that in your book, and and so there's. gosh
1: yeah. I, I should go and reread that. I haven't read that since I was twenty three, uh, and uh, in hospital uh, with um, a back injury. Oh, um, I'd lifted a keyboard back in those days. They were big beasts, uh, and I'd um, burst a disc in my back, and I was in hospital. My father used to bring me a very strange assortment of books. I don't know how he chose them. He bought some really terrible science fiction. But there were two books he bought which um, one was Annie Dillard's Pilgrim at Tinker Creek and I must dig it up and reread it. I found it quite hard work at the time. But the other book he bought was um, Jorge Luis Borges um, Labyrinths which is the English translation of his Spanish fictions with a few other things. And that Blew my mind, and he's still my most favourite author. It's Borges, uh, and um, uh, so that's what rock and roll does for you. You see, you get in hospital, and people bring, bring give you Borges to read.
0: It's it's funny that you, you mentioned that because I I, I delighted in. Uh... Seeing you bring up Borges in this mm-hmm. book, uh, I haven't read any of his stuff. I'm, I'm only familiar with it secondhand. But then uh, David Krakauer mm-hmm. at SFI and, and Tim Taylor, his his uh, office manager he um, or director of his office, they gave me the collected works of Borges just like a couple of weeks mm-hmm. ago. And I'm about to dig into it. But then you also mentioned oh, Olaf mentioned It will fry stable. your
1: brain. Oh, Stapleton. Starmaker. Oh, wow. yes, Starmaker. Like fans yeah, of the, like people
0: who listen to this show know that I am a, a, an Olaf Stapledon lunatic.
1: Are you? Yes. Wow. Um, well, I, I thought of Starmaker because, I mean, I've read it several times. And while I was writing the last chapter of the book, I got it out again to read. Um, and the reason I felt I had to include it, there were two reasons. One is the, the scale of time um in fact uh you know that in the book which we're talking about which is my book a very short history of life on earth um it's all available in all good bookstores students it'll do half your assignments for you so by two uh, and <laughs> um the what some of the things you notice there are no illustrations but there are time charts and it was because of star maker That I did the time charts in the way that I did them, like the very, the very first timeline is Earth in the universe. You know, it goes all the way to Milky Way merges with Andromeda Galaxy at the top. Um, And then I have Cambrian explosion and then now and then a tiny bit further on extinction of all life on Earth. (laughs) So it it was there. It was just like the timelines at the back of Star Maker to make you feel giddy with the scale of it. Um, So that was the first reason. And the second reason was when I was talking about the um, mayfly evanescence of human life on Earth that we're going to be here and then we're going to be gone, like Annie Dillard's flickering of glaciations. Uh, and um, uh, Stapleton wrote Starmaker, You know, he was a veteran of the First World War. For those who don't know, uh, Stapleton was a, a most uh, unusual writer of speculative fiction. And um, uh, he was a pacifist, but he did serve on the Western Front in the First World War as an ambulance driver. So he probably saw more death and carnage than even the soldiers did. So he was like most of these war veterans, these authors that came out of war, they were so traumatized by their experiences that they could only express it in terms of fantasy. Now, Stapledon did his kind of, you know, his more political, philosophical fantasies like Star Maker and Last and First Men. But another veteran of the Western Front was Tolkien, and he was invalided out uh, with pyrexia of unknown origin, which we now call Trench Fever. And he wrote this story called The Fall of Gondolin, which is about this elvish city that is um, besieged by Fire-breathing metal beasts, which then became dragons. This is a guy who was one of the first to see the first tank battles. I mean, imagine how traumatic that might have been. So Tolkien, and then other war. This is—I didn't really think about this until uh, I read um, Tom Shippey uh, talk r- r- about this. Kurt Vonnegut and Slaughterhouse Five, Definitely. you know, who witnessed the bombing of Dresden. So uh, Mervyn Peak at Gormangast all these were battle scarred PTSD suffering war veterans.
0: I got one for you. Cuz
1: so,
0: yeah. Walt Disney was an ambulance driver in World War 1.
1: He, really? he was he was he
0: well, I don't know if he was a driver. He was in the ambulance corps 1916 Fantasia. Think about yes. it.
1: Yes. Yeah. And also Snow White. I think Snow White and the Seven doors, the best movie ever made. Um uh, released in the same year that the hobbit was published 1937 and also the same year that star Maker was published weird this kind of stuff anyway so um at the end of star Maker, um the protagonist wonders how ordinary human beings can cope with the kind of dreadful horror of war and he says we have two lights for guidance. One is our own little atom of human community, and the other is the cold light of the stars, which seem very, very, very antithetical. But I hope you don't mind, and you won't, because I'm going to do it anyway, even if you did mind. And you're, and I'm going to read the last bit of my book about Stapledon, and uh, Stapledon concludes in Stylemaker... Strange that it seems more, not less, urgent to play some part in this struggle. This brief effort of animal kills striving to win for their race some increase of lucidity before the ultimate darkness. Uh. And so then I write at the very end, Therefore do not despair, the earth abides, and life is living yet. Oh, I enjoyed writing that sentence. It's lovely.
0: You You know, it's it's funny because... I know that Stapleton was an influence on Lovecraft, and I feel like Lovecraft completely missed the point. Did, really? They were different times? Well, I mean, Lovecraft, Lovecraft, Lovecraft endorsed him. Lovecraft right. celebrated him, you know. Yeah. But I, I think, you know, Lovecraft had uh, issues that made him Lovecraft unwilling to accept, Lovecraft, you know, the madness of... of
1: well, well, Lovecraft and... I mean, Stapleton these days would be seen as fairly left-wing... And and to, um, and um, uh, we know that Lovecraft was very very right wing in his, I, his views. So I don't know if this is pseudoscience,
0: um, but it it does kind of beg that question about whether um, it's, somebody's going to call me on this. But I, I, it reminds me of something I had read at some point about uh, that conservatives have a more active disgust response. You know, they're just they're just like that they, they just don't want it as much. You know, there's like, no, oh, that's interesting. No, thanks. I, yeah, I, I'll have to look that well, up. Well,
1: I love, I love Lovecraft. Lovecraft uh, is so, his writing is so bad that it's brilliant, uh, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Um, and uh, Brian Aldis wrote that Lovecraft succeeds as psychological case history, even if it fails as literature. And mm. one of the things you can do with very bad literature is parody it really easily and lots of people i mean there, there are quite a few horror writers who started by parodying lovecraft um you know i think clive barker was one of them um um i mean but his lovecraft mythos Lovecraft world Lovecraft use of language just incredible i mean the man was a very strange flawed genius um, but um uh, so You know, Lovecraft is immense fun, but, you know, when you've read, you know, The Mountains of Madness or, you know, the the horror over Innsmouth or or, all that stuff, when you've read it and you've stripped away all the terrible writing, it has a psychological trace in your head. It leaves some preternaturally phonic ecore in your (laughs) In your in your in your in 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 your fevered brain, uh, and uh, it kind of sticks with you. Ugh. Well, I mean, um, do you know?
0: Do you know? I mean, you must know Charles Strauss.
1: Oh yeah, I don't know him personally, but I know his work, and I know when he his books about the laundry, where it's a kind of mash up of Lovecraft and James Bond, and right, uh, it's hi- hilariously funny. I mean,
0: the two um, of you look like you could be cousins. I mean, it's, it's... well,
1: we do actually. Yeah. Um, well, and also I've got my Neil Stevenson beard. Yes, that, that. that helps. Yeah, you do.
0: But yeah, um, he's Strauss is very, very good at, at satirizing Lovecraft as um, well.
1: Yeah. So he, I remember there's one of his uh, books about the laundry where he has the um, the protagonist's girlfriend plays this violin that's made of a human bone. And it's an Erich, genuine Erich Zan. And that's a short story of Lovecraft. The music of Erich Zahn, where somebody has this haunted violin and plays this impossible music.
0: I didn't um, read that one, but I bought it for my wife because she's mm-hmm. a, a she was trained and worked for years as a concert violist oh. and a, as a luthier. And so yeah. she stopped she stopped doing that when she had kids. But mm-hmm. she mm-hmm. delighted in that book, you know, because it's <laughs> like it, she's uh, very into spooky stuff i i also recently bought her ellen moore riffed on lovecraft and and did a graphic novel um called providence uh, do you know i
1: i kind of missed alan moore and i should get into it because you know i've never got into the sandman or anything like that because kind of graphic novels passed me by and i've only kind of tangentially heard of them through um reading neil gaiman and uh, you know books like Good Omens and American Gods and things like that.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, uh, I
1: love is, Neil Gaiman. Morris, Pr- Neil Gaiman Morris is just
0: Promethea, great. I think, is yeah. one of the finest graphic novels ever produced. Um, yeah, and, yeah. But so, actually, this this I mean, this isn't uh, to the point of your book, but this does bring me to a question I wanted to to ask you about because we've been sitting here stewing in, in sci-fi references for a while, which is. Uh, normally I don't read the press materials that publishers send me. Mm-hmm. I just want to read the book. I want to, I, yeah. I, I don't, you know, people send me like, you could ask them questions about this. And I'm like, no, screw mm-hmm. you. I'm going to ask my own questions. Uh, <laughs> but I, you know, like two days before our, our, uh, last week's originally scheduled call, yeah. um, mm-hmm. I, I went ahead and I actually looked at that packet and realized that you're the guy that founded nature futures. I, did, yeah. I was that like, was oh great. my God, like this is, this has been the, I've only written ever one actual, like legitimate work of science fiction. Um, but I, I was like, oh my God, I need, I need to write another because I need to submit something to nature futures. And so I would love to hear you talk about, about that particular act of transgression of getting speculative fiction into a scientific journal, because I mean well, that was just like a uh, yeah. that was a like a hail mary pass, and
1: you landed it somehow. And I'm, I'm, I'm well, amazed. You see, the thing about Nature is certainly in the past we felt that we could do. There was a certain. It's not quite so much now. Now we're sort of huge and corporate, but when I started, Nature was a very small organization, and we really had the sense of hey, let's do a show right here. And, um, we sometimes thought, yeah, we could just do stuff because we felt like it. And that's wonderful creative freedom. So it was 1999 and we were wondering how we were going to celebrate the millennium. Uh, and, uh, somebody in the, in the office had the idea of commissioning a series of science fiction stories to celebrate the millennium. And I can't remember who it was um one of my uh colleagues insists that it was me but i'm not sure anyway this idea erupted to the surface like a kind of pustule and the uh ma- the, the manager of the kind of books and art section said okay henry you know about science fiction you run it well i didn't know that much about science fiction but so so what i did was i um uh i wasn't quite sure what to do Um, But then uh, it turned out that Tor Books, a science fiction imprint in New York, was part of the group of companies that also owned nature. Um, And uh, one of the directors, Stefan von Holzbrink, he was a lovely, lovely guy. He really liked to get down and dirty with the kids, you know. And he came to my desk one day and said, uh, he was interested in features. He said, Henry, he said, you should visit Tor. They are one of our companies. So I thought, mm. So I, um, I, uh, went to New York and I visited, um, Tor and I got in touch with, uh, oh, can't remember the name, the, the anthologist. I'll find it, you know, Tom Doherty Associates. Oh, I can't remember the name. A lovely guy who did a lot of their anthologies who helped me, and he's dead now. Um, And they gave me a whole pile of books and huge lists of contact lists, which I went home. So the first person I asked was Arthur C. Clarke, um, because I happened to have his email. Um, The reason I had his email was I had done a film review of the um, Roland Emmerich film Independence Day, the, the first one, um, which I thought was terrible, and so I wrote, <laughs> I wrote in this, why doesn't, why don't people adapt the amazing canon of unadapted science fiction novels that there are out there? I mean, for example, I wrote Arthur C. Clarke's Childhood's End starts in much the same way as independence day with alien spaceships hovering over the cities of the earth but the um what happens next is much more interesting well it turned out that clark was our one subscriber in sri lanka and he <laughs> sent me a he sent me a fax you know remember those um and the fax was a table of all his books and when they were optioned by paramount pictures None of them had been made into films, except for 2001, which started as a screenplay anyway. So that was interesting. And I got to talk to Clark, and I got to meet Clark. I actually met him. He was in London. Um, uh, and he wrote this story long before the the column came out. It was going to be our first story. And um, uh, he was... Oh, this is a... Oh, crikey. <laughs> there was this is this is so this is so many so tangent everything is a tangent everything else. There was an exhibition in London at an art gallery called the National Portrait Gallery, where they were going to have portraits of a hundred famous people, and there was going to be an event in which the people themselves would also be present. so Arthur C. Clarke was one. He was quite old. He was wheeled around by one of his you know uh, people in his wheelchair. And I went up to him and said, hi, I'm Henry G. And his first things he said was in a broad West country accent, which he never lost. And well, I'm not going to imp- try and import He said, when are you going to publish my piece? Uh, and uh, I said, it will be out soon. And he offered it for free. And his agent was furious about that and chased me out about <laughs> that. So we started as we meant to go on. We had Arthur C. Clarke and we had, you know, Dan Simmons and Greg Bear. We did have Charlie Strauss. Oh, oh, in fact, the first, the first few, first bit we had, um, Joe Haldeman, Peter F. Hamilton, Harry Harrison, Nancy Kress, Jeffrey Landis, Paul McCauley, Vonda McIntyre, um, Corey Doctorow, um, Jack Cohen, an old friend of mine, Catherine Kramer, Jeff Crook, um, Stephen Baxter, Barrington Bailey. Um, we eventually, in the end, had um, my favourite science fiction author is probably Ursula Le Guin. And I, I wrote to her and I got this lovely handwritten letter back He she said he wasn't going to, to do it. But eventually, Vonda McIntyre, who was a great fan of the series, prompted her to do it and they did one together. I also got Frederick Pohl to do one who must have been about a thousand years old and he wrote it by hand and I had to kind of transcribe it. Luckily, these stories weren't very long. Anyway, I ran that till about 2007. And then I gave it over to a colleague of mine, uh, Colin Sullivan, who runs it to this day. Then, what used to happen is it used to be at the back page of Nature and it was only for short runs and then we would stop it and do some boring marketing feature and then people would write in and say hey what happened to futures that's the only reason we read read nature is for futures so no it, i did it till 2012 in 2007 was going to be its third run and the editor Phil Campbell at the time said can you br- how long would it take you to bring back futures? I've got nothing to put on the back page. I said, I'll just ring some of my mates, right? And uh, I said, I'll do it on one condition. I said, that it's not a short run. It's a continuous run. And, you know, until, you know, we run out of the energy or the earth is struck by an asteroid, whichever comes first. And good to his word, futures is still going. Although no, I think it's, put, it's just online now. Um, and it's still there. I've made a lot of friends through futures. Eventually we just, it was originally commissioned, um, but we uh, we we opened it to all comers after a while because people would write to me that I hadn't commissioned. And they said, will you accept my story? I said, no, we just commissioned them. He said, well, why didn't you commission me? I said, all right, then write me a story. So, you know, eventually I just said. Uh, I mean you know we get tons of them, and we reject most of them because you know most of them aren't very good, but we've discovered some really good authors from Frederick Pohl who must have been in his nineties, and we had a young author who was like eleven at the time and uh and it's been it was immense fun, but you know I moved on to other things um and uh but you know i still had i still have half an eye on it occasionally um Sometimes I wish I was still editing it, but my wife gives me a Paddington bear hard stare when I.
0: Well, yeah, uh, I mean, I guess, I guess, uh, you know, Clark's going to have, uh, Denis Villeneuve do rendezvous yeah. drama now.
1: Oh, well, you know? yeah. I mean, so we just Villeneuve on teenagers.
0: everything. Like, okay, Frank Herbert, check, you know, arrival that was brilliant yeah. i mean that guy oh, yeah, uh, philip dick you know we're gonna yeah. make a sequel to, to to blade runner that's i don't know yeah. i thought it was better than blade runner in some respects yeah. but i mean anyway that's um it's beautiful
1: so that's how futures happened and we did do a couple of uh, anthologies and once i was giving a talk in china and in shanghai and after the talk these two very giggly young women came out and presented me with the two futures books translated into Chinese. I had no idea. Um, So, uh, yeah. Um, I've written some science fiction myself, but it was fun hobnobbing with the greats of science fiction and also finding some new voices as well. Uh, um, (laughs) I got one from Kim Stanley Robinson, who was... um, Having an awful trouble writing, and he said to me, I'm more used to 800 pages than 800 words. And, uh, (laughs) uh, uh, Greg bear wrote a very funny one. It was a book review by a robot called Alum 3, who were, no, a book review by a robot of a detective story written by a robot called Alum 2, and the protagonist of the story was called alan three and the the story said a thinly disguised portrait of alan two <laughs> uh and and there were some there were some very funny tales that people wrote i mean you know 800 900 words is just the right leg for a good joke so, so some of them were quite were quite humorous uh some of them were very dark um and uh each one is a little you know You've, the futures collection is a, a, a one of these kind of seasonal chocolate assortments of little tastes. Um, uh, a, a, I, I only learnt this later. It was called Flash Fiction. That's what it's called. Very brief stories. Uh, somebody asked me to write a a, um, a horror story in one sentence, and it, it goes something like this: um, I had a wonderful f- telephone conversation. Uh, with the person on the other end of the phone. And it was only when I finished the conversation that the phone had been disconnected for months. A brief horror story.
0: Uh, (laughs) I've had that
1: conversation. (laughs) Yeah, I'm supposed to be writing another novel which starts like that, but I haven't really got it off the ground. Um, I've been too busy doing other stuff.
0: Wow. So,
1: I mean, I guess... I,
0: I hope it's obvious to anyone listening to this that you sort of embody the the corpus callosum between science as you know a a a, a practice of like discovering something that we know about the world that's out there and science fiction as as a a way of entertaining possibility. And I've, I've just always had it in my mind that these things are more intimately related than most people give them
1: credit. Well, they should be, they should be. Um, I mean, most scientists, you know, are going to be sci-fi geeks. I mean, they grew up with Star Trek or Star Wars or Dune, or, you know, the things you were talking about, the anime. Um, And the same with me. I mean, my father read me HG Wells when I was small His father had read H.G. Wells to him. Um, And then I got into sci-fi aged about 11. And it was all to do with the... It was all connected with the, you know, my emerging hormones as a teenager. Uh, And uh, I used to go to this strict boys' school in a town quite far away from where we lived. So after school, I would walk... A few blocks to where my dad had his office, he was a lawyer, and I he'd send me up to this attic room to do my homework, and then he'd finish for the day and off we go. Well, I shared this attic room with this uh young typist, um, called Margaret, who must have been in her 20s, and she had this long brown hair, and goodness me, scent of a woman. I mean, it you know, along with my emerging hormones as a you know, preteen. and. S- sitting in this garret with this beautiful girl, and I learned later she was something of a tearaway. Um, but she had, she gave me all the science fiction books that she'd read in her lunch hour. They were Asimov's Foundation trilogy and all of Arthur C. Clarke and you know, loads of other stuff. And it was all, they all smelled of perfume and cigarettes. <laughs> so you can imagine the effect. You can imagine the effect on me, aged 11 and 12. So my exposure to science fiction, um, you know, came at the time of the exposure to all sorts of other dangerous possibilities in in, in the life of a young lad. Uh, And so that had much more of an effect on me than I thought. Um, And so that's why I became a fan of science fiction. And I would imagine that a lot of people... I mean, you... You know, you were exposed to science fiction at a, a young age.
0: I, I found Jurassic Park in its first printing on the end cap in a bookstore when I was in mm. living in Orlando while my father worked for Universal Studios. Uh-huh. Before I even knew that the film had been optioned and was under was under production by Spielberg and that Crichton and Spielberg had made a back backdoor deal you know, Mm. where they, they went through the whole hullabaloo of like shopping it around and letting people fight over it. And so like, I guess Warner brothers wanted to put Tim Burton on that film and my God, what an alternate universe we would be. That would have
1: been (laughs) been.
0: (laughs) black and white striped T-Rex, but like the, uh, yeah, I found that book at seven and I, I read it. I had read it four times, I think by the age of 11 and, and, and I am, I am tattooed with Jurassic Park. Wow, Potter. and yeah. um, you know, I, I, yeah, so I, I, have an intimate early, early relationship with that, and then of course, oh, wow. you know, just being in in high school, like I didn't, my my parents split up, and I moved from Orlando to Kansas City, and I was, uh, I at, at first committed to not making any new friends because I had lost all of my friends, and I was like, oh. screw this, I'm gonna go to college. in so how old years, were, anyway. you? How were you? Thirteen. Oh, yeah, that's a hell of a time. Yeah. I was like, so I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna make any friends. Of course, that's nonsense, but I was like, I'm not gonna make any friends in high school. So I just spent my lunch hour eating as fast as possible and then reading Kim Stanley Robinson's Mars trilogy, yeah, um, uh, yeah. a bunch of, uh, actually uh, some Clive Barker's uh, more that one he did on vampires on Mars. I forget what that was called. No, I can't um, there was, uh, you know, I mean, I think I'd already read Ray Bradbury at that point, you know, a mm-hmm. sound of thunder. I actually did as a, as a forensics piece as a drum, a dramatic interpretation in, mm-hmm. in, in, high, mm-hmm. in high school. And, um, yeah, just, oh, oh, blood music, Greg Bear's blood music oh, wow. is one of my favorites to this day. You know, these, I mean, that's that's Wonderful. how I spent my lunch, my lunch period was just hunched in a corner, you know, doing my thing. And I think that that's like, you know, to your point, like to this intersection, I think, uh, you know, people don't give enough credit to the acknowledgement or like they don't acknowledge that uh, the the hypothesis is a speculative fiction until yeah. it's yeah. not.
1: Exactly. It's exactly right. And I wrote a book called The Science of Middle Earth where the whole shtick of the book was exactly that, was that um, uh, science is the process of creating uh, an alternate universe in your head and wondering how things would work in it. Um, and this may be, and also because scientists are big kids, right? We still haven't had that natural curiosity beaten out of us uh and uh by the regimen of school so the scientists are usually the awkward squad the slightly aspergic um nerds who never quite fit in who tend to see the world in in an unusual way um and, and look at the whole thing from a different angle and it's people like that who overturn paradigms and uh discover new ways of thinking, uh, which is what we like to see in scientists and science fiction writers. Um, And also, uh, the really good scientists are also very funny, and so are the good science fiction writers. I mean, have you ever met Ian Watson? Mm -hmm. Ian Watson, who back in the 70s wrote these quite serious science fiction uh, novels, The Embedding, The Jonah Kit, Chekhov's Journey, The Martian Inca, Alien Embassy... Well, he kind of took me under his wing at various conferences and uh, edited some of my short stories. Um, but he is the funniest, funniest person. He could have been a stand-up. Um, I, I mean, if you hang out with people like that, you're never going. There's never going to be a dull moment. Um, uh, so I was privileged actually to meet some of the people, and also some of the people you meet. These authors are. You know, some of the people had bad reputations, but some of the people were really lovely people. One of the authors I really liked was Ian M. Banks, who uh he might not... He's more popular in Britain, I guess. He's a Scottish author who wrote really slick space opera. He revived space opera as a genre. And his books are really slick, ultra-violent, horrific. Um. I loved them, and I'd been trying to get him to write for Futures for ages and ages, and I never succeeded. He was the one person I wanted. But I was actually at a science fiction convention, and I happened to be standing next to him in the coffee queue. So I got talking to him, and, uh, you know, this is the author of this really tough, ultra-violent stuff. He was the kindest, sweetest, most modest, self-effacing person you could ever meet. And it was such a shame. He, one of these people who was taken away from us far too early by cancer. Um, ah, but at least I got to meet him. You know, my one of my heroes. That was nice. And you know, you always got to be careful when you meet your heroes. They might have feet of clay, but you know, you met Bob Backer at a young age, and and uh, I met Ian Banks, and I met Arthur C. Clarke, and they were all. Uh, Ian Watson and all these sci-fi greats and they were all just as great as I imagined Um, and very kind and helpful and full of very humble uh, and uh, quite unaware of their effect on that they'd had on so many lives.
0: (laughs) I mean, you kind of have to, I mean, I I remember just recently reading uh, a letter, a an open letter that Neil Stevenson published on his site about why he's probably not going to answer your emails mm. and he was saying basically that you know it's just like uh, the problem is it's it, it doesn't scale right like mm. you know you read someone's book and you feel like you've established a personal relationship with them because in a way you have you've entered their mm-hmm. mind you know and yeah. you've 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 become an endosymbiote of their imagination yeah you have
1: and I and, mean books yeah. books books don't exist books don't exist unless, uh, uh, unless they enter people's minds uh sorry i interrupted but you yeah so he's just like people. but the,
0: so there's just no way that i can i can respond to all of this mm. or i won't write more books and i need no. to write more books to stay sane and that was mm. the, i think mm. that's you know you brought up stand up and it's actually funny because i've been uh there are a few people uh, postdocs at sfi that go out and do a, a a local comedy open mic here that's run by the guy that does our webmaster stuff, uh Nick Pelton of Wayward Comedy here in santa Fe and i've been meaning to get out there because i've written some stuff that i, I wasn't intended to be funny exactly but i've I've read it aloud and and had people in stitches like psychedelic futurism uh essays. That worked as, as, uh, comedy. And I was like, I should, I should take this more seriously. But yeah, there's, there's something about the, um, the, the, again, the transgression, the, the way that it allows, uh, you were talking earlier about, you know, the, like, people at at these lbgtq parties and Mm. or or just like you know festival culture where people show up as themselves Mm. you know i just Mm. saw a a spectacular stand-up by taylor tomlinson who Mm. you know she was talking about how she's on medication for bipolar and her mom died of Mm. cancer when she was a kid and she just leads she she walks people by the hand into the most horrific shit you can imagine Mm. with a smile and the confidence that this is the place for it, that this is what's acceptable. And there's something about the, the, uh, the comedian as, uh, my friend, Mitch Mignano, uh, here in Santa Fe has has actually did some graduate work on the trickster archetype Mm. and, and it's Mm. manifestations in, in modern culture. And he talks about the importance of this, you know, the, the importance of giving people a space within which they can entertain things as they are and i think that that's you know that that is um well that was always the
1: function of the court jester yeah the court jester was the one person who was allowed to criticize the king without having their head chopped off and that was an important function because they didn't appear as themselves they appeared as the persona of the court jester and that gave them the license to say things to the king that he should hear but no one else would dare tell him and so that's a kind of trickster uh, when you said trickster I mean I remember going with my daughter to see uh the the Joker with Joaquin Phoenix mm. did you see that I still haven't s- yeah but I, oh I, you I... should astonishing astonishing film I mean it's really you know gritty it's really it, it, it's basically explores the whole Batman mythos from the Joker's point of view and it's very <laughs> revealing um and, and Joaquin Phoenix was just, just astonishing, um, as kind of the you know that very damaged person who's trying to get people to see the way the way they are. And you know he recast Bruce Wayne as very much part of the establishment, which of course he was. He grew up in a big house, and you know he had Alfred the Butler. And you know, who's lots of money, very privileged. Where the Joker was originally in this film, trying to make his living as a kind of clown and children's entertainer. Um, yeah, sorry, I've um, well, no, I mean, I it's, digressed I mean, again.
0: But I mean, it, it, uh, it's great. No, I mean, we are doing what your book portrays the process of evolution doing, which is running every way down the mountain right? Mm, it's, mm, it's mm. maximum entropy production.
1: Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, is, yeah.
0: We're actually, we're in, in a way, even though we're, we're, we're not spending a ton of time on the content of your book. I feel like we are performing its thesis, you know, which mm. is that, you know, that this non-linearity and, but I, I, I just wanted to, to sort of make sure that I, I get this out there, that there's mm. this thing about the, I, I feel like be, between the stand-up comedian and the science fiction writer and the scientist. Well, I mean, there are different kinds of scientists, obviously, but I think the ones that I love are the ones that uh, tend to be like the Kuhnian shifters. You know, they're they're, they're the ones that are attuned to the anomalous that they're, they're disquieted. You know, they're not, they're, they're in that, in that sort of Joaquin Phoenix Joker way. They're not comfortable With the the, the the story that everyone is being told, mm.
1: and mm-hmm. you know, um, well, that's a very that's a very Philip K. Dick kind of thing, isn't it? Mm, yeah, yeah.
0: So yeah. I don't know if you know Simon Dedeo. I, I interviewed him no, for the other for the don't SFI's don't Complexity Podcast. He's a Carnegie uh, Mellon mm-hmm. professor, inter- very interesting guy, and he co-authored some work uh, a few years back on uh, he he broke down. The like using a like a Bayesian formalism, the mm-hmm. the way that um, people different different types of explanations actually adhere to different heuristics for what's what what constitutes a satisfying explanation. You know, like you can have a conciliant explanation, you can have a parsimonious explanation. Um, mm-hmm. Like you you know, and what he was basically saying was that. Um, you know, some people want one story that will explain as many different disparate phenomena as possible. Other people are looking for just the shortest line of code that will write, mm. you know, and, and so he was saying that basically the, the difference between a, you know, the insane conspiracy theorist and a paradigm shifting physicist is I mean he's like saying like Maxwell like electromagnetism is basically a mm-hmm. conspiracy theory. The mm-hmm. the what di- what differentiates uh, you know a, a major scientific breakthrough from a conspiracy theory is that these people are embedded in a community in which people have uh, different standards for what con- for for what they they consider a satisfying explanation. And mm, so these, mm. they're, they're, they're held in check by each I other. Get you. I whereas, get you. whereas yeah. the conspiracy theorists are just surrounding themselves with, with people that, you know, that f- have the same sort of aesthetic for, mm. for explanation that they do. And mm. so, I mean, there's, you know, it's not a, it's not a personality thing. He was basically saying that, you know, the difference that in in some respect that um, insanity is actually like a social emergent phenomenon. It's, it's not something mm. that, you know, this, this person in a different context may actually, you know, be the, the one that is the, you know, the, the, on the parapet, you know, the sentry that's seeing something mm. before everyone else.
1: Have you seen the bridge? Have you watched the bridge? No, the bridge, the bridge, I don't know if it's available in America the Bridge is a Scandinavian detective series. It's now, it was got to its fourth series. I don't know if anyone is, it's, there's this large, there's this bridge that goes across the strait between Denmark and between Copenhagen in Denmark and Malmö in Sweden. And it's a detect, it's a series of detect, de- 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 it, each series is 10 episodes and it's a crime story and it involves a Danish policeman and a Swedish policeman. And the Swedish policeman is always this woman called Saga Noreen. And she's unbelievably aspergic. It's never said in the series. Um, And she has awful problems getting on with people. But she's kind of retained as a detective because she is so good. She strips away all the social convention and gets right down to the facts. And that's why she's a good detective. And also, it's because of that. She filters all the extraneous noise out and sees things in a new way. You know, everyone is pursuing one line of inquiry and she says, ah, oh, but nobody's thought of such and such and then goes and solves it. But she does it at immense personal and social cost. I mean, she's a very damaged individual.
0: That sounds like um, the way the BBC recasts Sherlock for
1: um, Yeah, well, yeah. She, is, she is a, a high-functioning sociopath essentially. Um yeah, Sherlock, did you like that? I did. I like I, I liked loved it. Yeah. It was, <laughs> I thought it was yeah. I
0: thought it was brilliant. Yeah. Mm. Well, I mean, you know, <laughs> we're we're going on here. I I want to make sure that we that we land this in your book. And I think you know because, I, because I'm trying we, very
1: hard to you know despite my best efforts to, to steer you away into all kinds of strange realms.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't mind at all, but I, I, I want to <laughs> yes, make sure you're, your, you're your complicit. You're, compli-
1: you're complicit in this, you know. It's, yeah, it's, I'm going to I'm going to say it's your fault. You know? Sure,
0: yeah, but I, I you know I want to I want to um, I want to run an idea past you and then use it as a bridge to okay. get into sort of the, the last chapter of your book. Um, yeah. Because, you know, you're talking earlier about the early bacterial soup yeah. and these cohorts of, uh, you yeah. know, heterogeneous bacterial affiliation. And you called it a freewheeling goblin market. And mm-hmm. I've been thinking about, you know, uh, what's going on right now on the internet and the way that um, arguably... And I think that some of the folks at SFI could formalize this in, in you know, mathematical hieroglyphics. I can't read. Um, but they would say that uh, – actually, David Krakauer has said this, that modernity is defined by the uh, – it's the moment at which culture started learning faster due to the recombinant collective learning than mm. any individual – and so you have people yeah. like okay. uh, you know Alexander von Humboldt, who was sort of like in yeah. some respects the last true polymath, yeah. the last person who could stand on the top of a, you know Chimborazo and mm. see it all, and you know yeah. one guy and see the isotherms and and mm. you know and mm. and get it. Uh, and then as he went on in his life, he started having to enlist people uh, in that yeah. process. I spoke to Andrea Wolf, his biographer, about this on mm. the other podcast, and mm. but so like there's you know now we live in an era where um in a way the horizontal transfer of cultural information between people is uh, arguably more prominent and more more uh of a causal force in our lives and in the the the, the shape and the texture and the future of civilization than our genetic inheritance. And, you know, when people talk about, you know, as a musician, people talk about the death of the genre, you know, because mm-hmm. we, we're now in this thing where there's, it, it looks like musical genres are, are uh, exchanging pl- bacterial plasmids mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. rapidly. Because, you know, in order to have a genre, you need to have a, a subculture. It needs to be anchored yeah, in a yeah. space. It needs to have a bubble around it that differentiates mm-hmm. it from everything else. And, and it's impossible to have that in the age of Spotify. And so now we're sort of migrating into a new informational architecture in which uh, it's algorithmic recommendation rather than you go to the record store and you look on your alt rock or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and so it's not, you know, it's not that the genre has died. The genre has actually super exponentially proliferated, but it's, it's no longer, um, useful in the same way that it was uh and and it, it exists within this larger superstructure the way that, that bacteria relate now to to eukaryotes and so hmm. you're la- anyway that's just a, a convoluted way of getting into you know some of the stuff that you <laughs> that honestly uh I I loved that by the end of this book you're stating uh things about the future of life on earth with the same authority and certitude that you were talking about the evolution of flights uh mm. or or you know the evolution of the mammalian ear which is such a virtuosic passage and people need to read that it was beautiful or the you know the 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 uh the evolution of the jaw you know these things mm. that were like fairly well understood at this point and you go on and and you talk about these these, uh, these new enfoldings of different organisms together into greater holes and the way that they will face the hardships of the future of the planet. And I found it completely plausible. I, I was, I was absolutely willing to just let you put me in the little cart and put on the rail Mm. and it's a small world and we're going to see it. And that was one of the points you were making actually was that things are going to get smaller again. So I Mm. I, I would love to hear you kind of just unpack all of that for people as a a parting gift. Great.
1: Well, as we, as we were talking earlier about the increasing complexity, one of the things, one thing I learned while writing the book was something from a, a, a book by Peter Ward and Donald Brownlee about how the earth will evolve in the future they were talking about the geophysics rather than the 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 life on earth Um, amid all the comings and goings and the great parade of life there are two things that are happening one is the decrease in carbon dioxide now this might seem very strange we're living in rather too much but carbon dioxide has its ups and downs on various scales but on the longest scale it's going down and the other one is the increase in brightness of the sun uh, and so I decided to put that together with what I'd seen of the properties of life, which is to become more integrated, to become more complex. Um, and then I remember a book I read recently by now the late E.O. Wilson called The Social Conquest of Earth that said that the most important, the most successful living organisms are the social ones. And we've been talking about bacteria. These are social organisms, still the most successful. And then the social insects, massively, massively uh, important in terms of, uh, you know, the the biosphere, the cycling of nutrients and in sheer numbers. Um, And, of course, human beings. We are a super organism. You know, you and me, you know, if we were cast away with nothing on a desert island, we could probably survive just about, but in no way with the comfort. and Uh, Sophistication that we can do now, because there are other people we rely on to make the technology that we can talk to each other and supply the electricity and you know grind the beans and you know make this whole uh, civilizational edifice. Humans are a a super organism, so I thought a super organism or organisation has been happening for millions of years. You know the mycorrhizae associating with plants. the yucca and the yucca moth, the fig and the fig wasp, um, things will become more. And in fact, if you look at uh, you know inside our cells, they're little organisms inside our guts. There are at least as many bacteria in our guts as there are cells in our body, that have all kinds of effects on our life, including our mental states. And these are part of us. These bacteria. So um, organisms, in order to survive, will become more and more and more integrated so that the last organisms will be a kind of hardly imaginable integration of animals, plants, and fungi, and later on, bacteria, as they as it gets too hot to be on the surface, and the warmth will heat up the very slow, deep biosphere where bacteria take thousands of years to divide. Um, and so in the last days of the Earth, the last organisms... Will be immense, um, conglomerations of what were once recognizable organisms, but are no more individual than mitochondria are in a cell. Uh, you know, they hark back to their bacterial origin, but they couldn't live on their own now. Um, until I say in the very last, um, phase of life now this is getting even more effective maybe there will only be one organism the whole of life will link together by mycelia to become one organism defiant against the death of the earth now i'm glad you say i made it very plausible this is the science fiction writer in me um yeah exactly so um or hg wells the time traveler goes to see the end of the earth um you know, there's these crab-like organisms on this stagnant ocean with a huge bloated red sun. And some of these sci-fi authors make you feel as if you were there. Um, so I felt that if I'm going to do a very short history of life on Earth, or even a long history of life on Earth, I can't just stop at the privileged position that is now, because now is... There is nothing special about now in terms of the history of life on Earth. You know, I wanted to think like one of Vonnegut's Trafalamadorians who yes. live their life in all phases of life at once. They can see the future and the past and, and, and they, they see it all at once. Or like Stapleton's The Creator, that, who can see the whole totality of the universe at once. Um, so I wanted to do a complete history of life on Earth. Now, who's to say whether I'm right or wrong I was starting with what I thought were fairly reasonable jumping-off points, which is what hard SF authors do. Um, yes, there are superorganisms. Yes, carbon dioxide is decreasing. Yes, the sun is heating up. Um, you know, there is more and more land tectonic activity that will decrease in time, uh, and that will stop the circulation of nutrients, and that will basically turn off the lights, and life will die. Um, So I wanted to do it in a dramatic uh, way. I'm not sure that it's ever been done before in a popular science book. I mean, I may be wrong. You know, so many books, so little time. Um, uh, I hadn't really thought of doing it like that until I got to it. It, I don't think it was in the original plan. But I thought, how am I going to end this? If I'm going to do a history of life on Earth, I can't just stop. You know, I mean, basically, it could have stopped at the end of prehistory where human beings worked, woke up into sentience. But I felt I, you know, I ought to skate over the, uh, you know, the the tiny ephemeral human. The human exceptionalism can just. Yeah. yeah. so, So, you know, humans come, humans will go just like the dinosaurs or indeed any other species. And the effect will be minimal. But then, what then will happen? because we're just at the beginning of this huge ice age, which is going to go on for another thirty million years until Antarctica gets off its ass and moves off the pole uh, and uh, um, and there're going to be hundreds more glacial interglacial cycles, and we're just living in one of them
0: well okay so you know, uh, can, can i can I maybe as a you know just as a last thing uh, issue a bit of a challenge here? Mm-hmm. Because as as plausible as as, as as plausible as I said it was, I thought it was there was a strange uh, absence in in what you were you were talking about, and and, and and for me it was the what uh, Kevin Kelly calls the technium. You know, he he describes mm. the sum total of of technologies as the seventh kingdom of life, and mm. you know uh, again to to reference the historian William Irwin Thompson, when he's talking about the entelechy and how we're moving into an era in which we understand our identity, not only as animals, but as animals defined relationally with other animals, as well as the vegetal world and the mineral world and the intelligences now that are, are being formally defined by people like David Krakauer and Chris Kempis at SFI in their, in their paper, multiple paths to multiple life using information theory to describe things like constitutions and blockchains as living systems. And so, you know, there's this sense in which, uh, I, you know, I, if the point, you know, Bill, Bill was talking about, you know, the, the Titans are replaced by the gods. The gods are replaced by people. And in, in every case, mythologically, it's something is replaced by something smaller and faster. And we currently are watching this happen, uh, with, you know, these machine intelligences and, and the, the complex systems of civilization that, um, are out, outwitting us now are you know that we're like uh, trees to them. And I and I, I think, but, but we are also integrated uh, with them very deeply. And so I'm just mm. I this is this is where I'd like to like to play with you here because I'm okay. I'm, I'm curious because I don't think it I, I do not in any way think of this as technology as separate from humans. Um, But in Bill Thompson's way of, of thinking it, because, you know, he was in uh, Lynn Margulis and, and Francisco Mm -hmm. Varela and Umberto Maturana, these people at Stu Kaufman were all part of the Lindisfront Association, Bill's organization. Um, You know, and, and he thought of humans as the sort of mitochondria within this larger thing that transcended what we conventionally understand as biological. And mm, I'm curious I'm to hear your thoughts
1: sure. on that. I'm not sure. I'm not sure about this. Um, well, on the one side, what you've done is exemplified by a movie. Have you seen the movie She? Yes. No, it's her. Her. It's her. That's her. It. Again, her. another Joaquin Phoenix film, yes. Yeah, where, where, where a man falls in love with the operating system and it turns out that she's in love with hundreds of people because she runs much faster than everyone else. And, uh, um, uh, my wife refused to see it with me because she said <laughs> it reminded me too much of me and my iPhone. And, uh, you know, we've got three people in this marriage, you know, me, him and his iPhone. Um, so that's one thing. But the other thing is who programs all these things? Uh, It's people who program all these things. We have AlphaGo that can play Go better than any human being, but that's all it can do. Um, And maybe something will happen in the future to make these things more human-like. But a friend of mine was talking about, you know, I was enthusing to a friend of mine about the wonders of internet commerce and he brought me down to earth he said in the end it all comes down to a man in a van uh so so um they're always going to be people may be dependent on technology but technology always depends on people and we were talking earlier about you know the enterprise star trek was the the best one because it it it, it portrayed technology as fallible and you know your the listeners won't realize the struggles that you and i have had just to connect with each other <laughs> uh just to to battle with the technology um and that we've had to use our initiative to to do it um i'm not sure that we're heading for this kind of singularity i um, mean never say never that that technology will come to dominate i think you know these things seem intelligent, but they're no more intelligent than a parrot or a telephone answering machine. I mean, they seem intelligent because they talk and we as humans associate things right. with intelligence. Oh, don't get, don't get me um, wrong.
0: I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm with critics on the fact that like, you know, that what those, those expectations of artificial intelligence are constantly being punted down the road. You know, yeah, we're not, I don't we're, not think, we're not doing think, that. But at I the same time, yeah. um, there are there are uh, other voices that I, with whom I agree that would argue that the singularity has already happened, and that we mm-hmm. we live within the you know like Timothy Morton calls it a hyper object. That we live within the you know these structures that it, uh, of, of of the societies of the superorganisms that in, civilization includes all of this other non human stuff. That uh, in, that exerts a downward causal pressure on us. That in a way we we're like uh, we have more of a relationship to society itself than we no, do to each I think other. I,
1: I think. Well, I'm a very pragmatic kind of guy, and you know, I realize that you know, technology. Without this technology, you and I wouldn't be able to talk to each other, despite the problems we've had trying to connect and just before the ukraine war i don't know when you're going to broadcast this but the ukraine war has been going on for just over three weeks but just before i did a a live interview on russian television i was on a chat show you know when you see a studio and you see the person on the big screen in the back that was me from my office where i am now and the russian broadcasters got in touch with me on instagram And I had perfectly nice discussions in English with the Russian, the young Russian TV producers who wanted me to talk about the extinction of human life. (laughs) And you know, they, they gave me, they had people, panelists in the studio in Moscow or wherever it was. They had various professors and students and people come off the street and they were talking and I had a simultaneous translation in my ear. So because of all this technology, I was actually a guest on a television chat show in russia now you know not not, and it was all through instagram and skype and whatever and one thing i learned about this is russians just like you and me they think the same way they dress the same way they know the same things and you know when you go to any other part of the world people are very much the same and this is something that we discover because of technology um despite all our I mean it sounds very hippy dippy trippy but despite all our upbringings, we're all very much the same and this is why I think Putin's gonna fail, because everyone knows everyone else. We all know we all have you know, we all know Anastasia and Alexander in Moscow. They're our mates, you know, we've we've been we, we we've shared memes with them um and we've sent them videos of our cats. Um and so that's what technology does. It, it's it's an enabler, but I don't think it's ever going to take over. I don't think there will be ever like transference of consciousness to to a, 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 a an artificial substrate for a number of reasons. One is I don't think consciousness actually exists. I, I'm I'm with Dan, Daniel Dennett on this, <laughs> uh, and um, but I think that if the human human species is going, it's not I do touch on in the book. If the human species is going to avoid extinction, it has to go into space and diversify into a number of different um, well, in, 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 into, into colonies in space. But, of course, by that time, we'll have ceased to be human. we will be lots of different species because, you know, OK, we might still have Facebook when we're all in space, but then we won't actually be able to meet each other and exchange genes, which is what it's all about. And, you know, one thing that is the blessing and also a curse of human beings is we're remarkably homogeneous genetically. Um, uh, you know, the the genetic distance between any two human beings is much less than the genetic distance between chimpanzees in adjacent groups in the forest in West Africa. And this is because of various bottlenecks that have happened in human evolution when humans have become, have nearly become extinct several times. Um, so, anyway.
0: So, more like a Dan Simmons future with the ousters.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. I like Dan Simmons. Uh, but, uh, you know, he's, he's very literary. I love the whole yeah. Ilium Olympos thing. You know, that was... Uh,
0: I didn't get to um,
1: that one. Uh, yeah, well, he wrote it in a very... Sh- he Basically, he wrote that conceit in a very short story in Futures, which was all about how fictional worlds are actually real. They're actually impressions of human consciousness on the space-time continuum that you could actually visit if the fiction was written well enough. Um, And it was in a little story called Madame Bovary, C'est Moi. And uh, somebody in the story interviews the inventor of this technique who's now living as a character in Madame Bovary. Um, But the thing is, None of the people who migrate to Madame Bovary or any of the five universes created by Shakespeare, for example, um, real n- knows that they're in a story. Uh, there are we know who the main characters are in, say, Hamlet or Madame Bovary, but then he says, "This raises the possibility that we are all living in a fictional universe, and if so, who are the main characters?" It uh, he leaves it with that.
0: That's a fine place to leave it. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Henry, this has been such an incredible
1: time. Yeah, uh, I'm but... now going to go and lie down in a darkened room. I think. Yeah,
0: <laughs> I think I, uh, I think I have to have a, a, a mass extinction of my bladder. Um, yeah. <laughs> so thank you so oh, much. You
1: you're lightweight, you lightweight, you know, you <laughs> want to come to England and drink pints and then you'd know all about that. <laughs>
0: Thank you so much for this, and I, I deeply hope that this is not the last conversation that you and I have. No. I have a list of things to send you, um, and i will I will get on well in
1: the, in the in the great golden future when people actually meet to you know it, uh, and breathe in each other's exhaled breath like we all used to, maybe we'll raise a glass and have a good old chat and keep on doing this.
0: and play some music,
1: yeah, and do that too right. good. okay. Live long and prosper. Take care.
0: Thanks again for listening. Follow me on Twitter or Instagram at Michael Garfield. If you would like to steep more persistently and ambiently in the intellectual atmosphere of this program, find the music for future fossils at MichaelGarfield.BandCamp.com. And please help yourself to extensive public archives book club recordings and additional content that never made it to the main RSS feed at patreon.com slash Michael Garfield we have some awesome episodes coming up I'm excited to share with you thanks for holding tight and until then have a most excellent now